However, one of the greatest themes of the Bible is the, the faithfulness of God. That is, the Lord fulfills every promise as he makes. What he says he will do, and what he promises he will perform. The Bible's full of such affirmations. The Lord said to Jeremiah, I was watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The Lord said to Ezekiel, I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. To Habakkuk, he says, the vision awaits appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And the rhetorical question comes in Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Of course, God will fulfill it. Whatever he says he will do, and whatever he promises he will perform. Those, those verses I quoted to you by Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Habakkuk are well and good as they, as they put forth really what God will do, but Jeremiah, Joshua testifies of what God did. Joshua twenty three fourteen. Not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Solomon gave testimony during, during the dedication of the temple. He said the same thing. 1 Kings eight fifty six. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses to his servant. There it is. Not one word has failed. Joshua testified to that. Solomon testified to that. The prophets all testified that that is indeed the case. And God's faithfulness to his promise is the key concept to our, our text this morning. So if you haven't done so, I invite you to open to Romans 11. Our text is 25 to 32 this morning. And if you didn't bring a Bible, I, I just encourage you to take one from the pew in front of you. Um, and follow along as we work through this text. And I just realized I don't have my Apple TV up, but it's, it's coming up. So hang on here. All right, let's just read Romans 11, 25 to 32. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. My message this morning is entitled, God's Irrevocable Calling. And it comes right there from verse 29, which is the core idea, the faithfulness of God. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That is, God cannot retract his promises. Once God has made a promise, he will keep it. He is the true promise keeper. 
God will be faithful to his promises. In fact, that's the main point, Romans 9 through 11, is God's faithfulness to his promises. In fact, do you remember why Paul wrote Romans 9 through 11? It's because Israel had received the great promises of God, but Israel was unbelieving. And so the question was, God promises to them. Well, did God retract his promises or was God unfaithful to his promises or has God's word failed? And verse 4 describes the great promises they received. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. These were the great blessings. These were the great gifts that God had given to Israel. But they were unbelieving. And Paul demonstrates this in verse 3 with his anguish. I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are accursed. I wish I could be accursed for them. So they received these gifts verse 4. They are lost, verse 3, and the question comes up about God's word and his faithfulness. Has God's word failed? And God says, absolutely not, is what Paul says. Verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then he spends three chapters talking about how God's word hasn't failed, particularly as it deals with Israel and how they are unbelieving. I just pulled out three answers to that question, and these are the three broad answers that he gives in in Romans 9 through 11. The first answer comes right in chapter 9. Not all physical Israel is spiritual Israel. Verse 8. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. See, God's promises never failed because they were never intended for every Israelite. Rather, the promises were intended for his chosen ones within Israel. And indeed, those are the ones, the children of the promise, they received the promises for sure. And that's the point of God's sovereignty and his election, that it comes to, his promises come to his elect. The second answer to the dilemma about God's word failing comes at the end of chapter 9. It's this, God's promises are received by faith. Look at chapter 9, verse 31. This then spins into chapter 10 about how important faith is. Israel, verse 31, chapter 9, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. Israel failed to receive the promises because they lacked faith. They thought they could receive the promises through works of righteousness, but that's not how anybody ever receives the promises of God. The promises of God always come by faith. And Paul shows this, quoting from Joel 2, verse 32, in Romans 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But Israel wasn't calling on the name of the Lord. They weren't dependently looking to him for mercy and grace. Israel wasn't seeking salvation God's way. They were seeking it their own way. And the third answer comes in chapter 11. There's a future for Israel. God has not rejected his people. Look at verse 1. I asked then, has God rejected his people? And Paul says, by no means. God has always had a remnant. He's always had his elect within Israel. And since chapter 11 and verse 11, uh, Paul has really sought to explain just God's perfect plan of salvation. It's, it's like, like all mapped out exactly like he wants it to go. And it goes like this. Israel stumbled, and their stumbling brought salvation to the Gentiles. But there's a time when the Jews come to faith and will be fully included in the faith, and the riches the Gentiles know will be super spiritual riches for the Jews. And we see that in verse 11 and 12. Look right there. So I ask you, he says, did they stumble in order they might fall? That is, fall away permanently, like fall away from God's favor. God rejected them. And he says, by no means. Rather, 
through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more riches will their full inclusion mean? And there are those words we looked at. They stumbled, the Jews stumbled, then the Gentiles are saved, and it means riches, it means more riches for them. There's a future for Israel in God's salvation plan. He says the same thing in verse 15. Look at, look at verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Israel rejected the gospel, and Israel rejecting the gospel meant the Gentiles were reconciled to God. But at some point, Israel will come back and believe and be like resurrected from the dead. So there are those words, rejection, reconciliation, and resurrection. There's a future for Israel in God's salvation plan. Last week, we looked at verses 17 to 24, which Paul said the same thing again. Only this time, he used the illustration of an olive tree. And I'm not going to read through the whole thing, but I'll tell you the story quick off, that the olive branches were were broken off, and the wild branches then were grafted in. That is, Israel. And, And the problem is, is that the wild branches are going to be even cut off, and the natural branches are going to be brought back in. That's the picture, right? Natural branches even brought back in. Look at verse 24. If you were cut off from that which is a wild, by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, in other words, if the Gentiles could come back into the Jewish covenant in promise, how much easier, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? The tree represents Israel. The broken off branches represent the unbelieving Jews. The wild branches are grafted in or the believing Gentiles. But the the natural branches being back will represent the time when Israel will believe and be accepted back into God's people. There's a future for Israel in God's salvation plan. And I've repeated this story for emphasis because Paul's going to repeat it twice more in this text. So are you ready to hear it again? I mean, there's one thing that whatever's most important, you repeat over and over and over again. And he's going to repeat it twice in this text. So how many times is that he's going to say this whole story? Five times, right? Two times two weeks ago, once last week, and then twice again today. But here's the story, right? You got Israel and mercy was offered to them and they rejected it. And so in their rejecting it, the mercy overflows to the world But with the world, Israel's made jealous by grace, and their mercy then goes to the Jews. It fills that up, and when it fills it up, then mercy comes all over the world. That is the plan. Well, the first instance of telling a story, I'm calling it the fourth time. The fourth time this story is told comes in verses 25 to 27. Let's just listen again. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul really begins with a healthy point of application. The application is this. Don't think you've got it all figured out. Don't be arrogant in your thoughts. It's really a call to humility. A similar application from last week. Chapter 11 and verse 18 He says, with regard to the the branches coming in and you're a wild branch being grafted back into the tree, he says in verse 18, don't be arrogant towards the branches. Remember, it's 
you, not you who support the root, but the root supports you. So don't be arrogant. These branches broken off because it was their very root that supports you. The other call to humility comes in chapter 11 and verse 20. This, they were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. Don't become proud. They think, hey, I've, I've got it all. No, don't, don't do that. And a similar here. Don't be wise in your own sight. Right? Don't think, hey, I've got it all. I've got it all. Because Israel is being hardened. The Gentiles are brought in. But when the fullness of the Gentiles happen, it's going back to Israel. It's a plan. And how easy is it to forget that our faith is founded upon God's promises to the Jews. And don't think, okay, that God just came to us to give us great spiritual blessings. He, he didn't. He did. But he went to the Jews and any blessing that we receive is really by way of overflow to the Jews. So don't be wise thinking that we got God all, all to ourselves, but we get the God who overflowed from the Jews to us. And furthermore, the blessings that we enjoy today aren't because we're good. It's because Israel's heart is hardened. The hardened Jewish heart. But there'll be an end to that, and God will turn back to the Jews. That's what we're talking about verse 25. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And I trust you can see this story for the, the fourth time. Right? This is what we had last week. We had the Jews and the Gentiles, and then back with the Jews again. And we saw in verses 11 and 12, the, the Jews stumble, but the Gentiles receive salvation and the Jews get spiritual, there's riches, the Jews will get spiritual riches in the end. In verse 15, he brought these words, they rejected it. So it's reconciliation for the Gentiles and there will be a resurrection for the Jews. In 17 to 24, the Jews were broken off, the Gentiles grafted in, but the Jews will be grafted back. And here in verses 25 and 26, it says the Jews were hardened which brought the Gentiles, and the fullness of the Gentiles will come in, and when that does, Israel will be saved. It's the same message, and it's hard not to labor the point. It's hard not to get tired of this, but this is the same point that Paul has been laboring over and over again. In God's perfect salvation time plan, the Jews were hardened, which brought salvation to the Gentiles, and then at that point, the, the hardening of Israel will come to an end when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And it's talking about time. Right, this fullness, right? Um, Paul used that in Galatians 4.4. 4, when the fullness of time had come, right? when, when everything was right, when, when it all was accomplished, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There is time there. There's also numbers. Paul used similar language in, in Galatians. I'm sorry. It's talking about numbers, right? The sense of, of numbers. When the, the numbers of Gentiles reaches to the top. Right? You, you remember, that, remember that picture here, right? That we've got the, the Gentiles when it reaches the top. And when all that full number comes in, then Israel will be made jealous. You know, in, in, Roman, in Revelation chapter 6, there's a very interesting phrase just talking about the, the number of, of people coming in. As we think about just time, but, but also numbers. And there were, there were martyrs in the, uh, with the fifth seal, and they were underneath... Um, underneath the throne, and they were crying out, God, when are you going to judge? And God says this. Um, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So, in other words, right, these martyrs had been killed for the cause of Christ. They're crying out for justice upon those who had killed them. And God says, no, wait, 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 wait. We got more martyrs to come. 
And, and when those martyrs are come, then we'll deal with the justice. So just he has more martyrs. He also has the fullness of the Gentiles. He has a number of all the Gentiles who will come in. And when that fullness comes, mercy again will be extended to Israel. As we read in Romans 11 and verse 26, in this way, all Israel will be saved. And to prove that, he digs back into the Old Testament. He digs back into Isaiah, Isaiah 59 and Isaiah chapter 27. And these passages picture the time when Israel will experience the full blessings of the covenant. Romans eleven twenty six, right? Quoting from Isaiah. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Isaiah is picturing a time when the Redeemer is coming to Zion to save Israel fully. And the Spirit of God is going to upon the Jews. They're going to experience a transformed heart such that he's going to banish ungodliness from Jacob. Like, no more sin in the land. That's an amazing work of God. It's not true of, of Israel today, by any means. Israel today is being prospered and blessed in an amazing way, but they're not godly. They are very ungodly but there will be a time when Israel experiences this, this transformed heart that banishes ungodliness from Jacob. Listen to Isaiah 59, verse 21, right? The very verse after what Paul quotes. He says this, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, he said, from this time forth and forever. Right? In other words, God's word is going to be on your heart, it's going to be in your mouth, and it's going to be on your mouth forever. This is God's plan. So when Israel comes back in, it's not like they're going to be unsaved again. It's not like they're going to be ripped away again. God is going to promise and keep them forever. They will know and experience the full forgiveness of their sins. You know, that's what we enjoy in Jesus. We enjoy full forgiveness of our sins. We, we enjoy our sins taken away through faith in Him. But the promise of this, verse 27, this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You realize that that promise of the Old Testament was to Israel, not to us. The, the promise is I'm going to take away their sins. It's my covenant with them when it, when it happens. Now, as Gentile believers, we certainly experience this. We, we know and experience forgiveness. But God didn't promise it to us. He promised it to them, and it is spilled over to us, and we enjoy it. But God promised it to them. They're not experiencing it now. What's going to happen in the future? God's going to be true to his promises, and he's going to bring them back. Listen, listen to the wording of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I mean, just because we experience these things as Gentiles, a, a new heart and new desires and a knowledge of the Lord, doesn't mean that the promise initially made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah won't be fulfilled. 
In other words, right, the, the promise that we have overflowed to us, but the promise will be fulfilled to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, some people try to just say, oh, the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Well, that's the church today. And they, they just spiritualize it away. And I said, no, God promises to Israel. And it was to them. Now, we receive the blessings of that. We are one new man with them. We, we are involved in the covenant with them, but that doesn't exclude them. The promise was made to them. It will be with them. Because, verse 29... The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The promises made to Israel will be fulfilled to Israel. There will be a day, verse 27, when all Israel will be saved, verse 26. Israel will be a Christian nation at some point in the future. If you know anything about the Middle East, that statement, you ought to be like, think about it. Israel will be a Christian nation someday. It's like, any politician would laugh in my face. Any student of history would mock that statement. A student of the Bible, though, will say, I believe that to be true. You might say, that's totally impossible. The Middle East is such a mess. The hearts are so hard. There's no human way that I could ever see Israel coming to Christ. But as Gabriel told Mary so long ago, nothing will be impossible with God. It will take place. Zechariah, I think it's 1210, says they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will see their Messiah. They will see Jesus. They will be converted someday. Well, let's, let's move on. We're going to move now on uh, how to view the Jews because that's the big question. It's a bigger question for them than it is for us, but I think we have a, a good application here. But as regards the gospel, Paul says, the Jews are enemies for your sake. But regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So how do you view the Jews? Well, we view them with tension. Because there, there are two things here. On the one hand, they're enemies because their heart is hard and they've not believed in the gospel. On the other hand, they are loved because of their forefathers and because they are the objects of God's promises. And we need to hold these two things in tension. That they are enemies, yes, on the one hand, but they are loved on the other hand. You know, there's a famous saying that goes like this. There's a famous uh, poem. How odd of God to choose the Jews. And uh, if you know anything about history, if you know anything about the Bible, um, the Jewish people are, are far from godly. Um, the patriarchs were not godly men. During the days of Moses, the Jews were grumbling, complaining sort of people, never satisfied with God's work in their life. The days of the judges was, was marked by decreasing circles or increasing circles of rebellion. The, the, the country just going down and down and down and down. When, when Israel received the king, did no better. I mean, things were good for a while under King David and King Solomon, but pretty soon there was a civil war. The kingdom cut in two, and the kings and the people pursued after other gods after that. Not the true God of the Bible. How odd of God to choose the Jews? Because their life was one of rebellion and unbelief. Yet God was faithful to this rebellious people. Maybe that's why he chose the Jews. I want to be, show myself faithful to a rebellious people. It's a message of Hosea, right? That, that uh, Hosea's wife went away and, and pursued harlotry. And, and God said to Hosea, bring her back because she's just like Israel. And just uh, magnifies and lifts up his love in being like that. And though many of God's people, Israel, faced God's wrath for their sin, God never gave up on them. 
Zechariah 2.8 describes Israel as the apple of his eye. And, and that's Zechariah, that's a late prophet writing after the patriarchs, after Moses, after the judges, after the kingdom split, after the exile, coming back still, Israel, rebellious, was the apple of his eye. How odd of God to choose the Jews. They didn't deserve it. They didn't merit it. But that's the point, right? Is that God set forth the Jews as an example of grace. But there's another line to this poem that goes like this. How odd of God to choose the Jews, but not so odd as those who choose a Jewish God, yet spurn the Jews. And sadly, down through the years, it's been the case of some in the church who have accepted the Jewish God, but hated the Jews. And Martin Luther is probably the, the king example of this. He wrote a diatribe against the Jews entitled, On the Jews and Their Lies. And one, one man wrote about this. He said this, In this treatise, Luther argues that Jewish synagogues and schools be set on fire, their prayer books destroyed, rabbis forbidden to preach, homes burned, and property and money confiscated. They should be shown no mercy or kindness, afforded no legal protection, and these poisonous, envenomed worms, is what Luther called them, should be drafted into forced labor, expelled for all time. He also seems to advocate their murder, writing, we are at fault for not slaying them. Even his last sermon before his death, he pleaded that the Jews be expelled from Germany. I appreciate much of what Martin Luther said, but in this case, he was wrong. He just flat out wrong. Yes, the Jews are enemies of God because they've rejected the gospel. They, they killed the Messiah. They have spurned God's ways all the time. Their hearts are hard. Um, and the Jews have done much to thwart the plan of God, but they are loved. They are God's chosen people. And we have to be very sensitive to treat them with respect and honor. Now, I don't think they need to be elevated high just because they are God's people, like that we just need to pour money into Israel. Israel is an unbelieving nation. But we need to deal with Israel as we would any other nation in kindness and grace, not in the way that Luther portrayed them. And we Christians should never be accused ever of anti-Semitism or racism. We should pursue people with peace and love. How odd of God to choose the Jews, but not so odd as those who choose a Jewish God Yet spurn the Jews. Let's just go by, by way of application here. Whoa, that's no good. You got the, you got the picture. Here we go. I will, we'll, we'll switch we'll just to here. I want you to consider just how, how you view those apart from Christ. I mean, how, how do you view those? Right? People who don't believe in Jesus and living lives of rebellion right now. How, how do you view people like that? They are enemies of the gospel. People who are, are living contrary to God. They've resisted God's will in their life. They're working against the kingdom of God. They are enemies. But on the other hand, if they're ever to be saved, they need to know the love of God. And they need to know our love and our care and our compassion to them. Because those who don't believe now are enemies of God, but not so unlike us, right? Romans 5, verse 10. Look, look back there. It says this. It says... If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Every single one of us in this room, we're enemies with God, just like the Jews. Regarding the gospel, they are enemies. That's just like everybody else. But God does his work through rebellious people. Through the gospel, he softens people. He shows them grace and loves them. And I just say this, you're the mouthpiece of God. It's going to extend love and grace. Yes, they're enemies for the gospel, 
but, but they need to know of love and grace and what the picture it means to be embraced by God. And so I encourage you, just extend your love around you to your enemies. So I got the picture of the kids here in the, the foreground. These are our, our neighborhood kids. And um, did a little drone evangelism this week. All right, I was uh, in church working and uh, stepped out to get something in my car. And one of the kids come running up to me with his little toy drone, probably all of $50, you know. And uh, he dropped it before me. And uh, he knew I had a drone because he'd seen me drop my fly mine before. And he wanted to show me how this can fly. And he got it. He said, whoa. And the battery didn't work. And they got the battery working and tried to fly. And it doesn't really fly very well. Um, but he said, will you fly your drone for us? I said, sure. And, um, uh, but my drone was inside the church building. I'm starting to carry that around wherever I go just to, just to have it. Um, but I transitioned to talk about Vacation Bible School with them. And I asked them if they knew anything about it. And they said, No. And so I said, wait here. So I went in the building. I got right two most important things. I got my drone and I got my VBS invite card is, is what I did. And I, I said, uh, uh, went out to, I said, can, can we go meet your parents? And they said, uh, okay. And so I, I went and I, I, I went to their houses. These were, what, two of those are brothers and one of them isn't. And uh, so I, I went and I, I went to the house and um, both times I met the dad or the grandpa. It's kind of who they're sitting with. What did my son do? Is he okay? I'm like, like, why else would a pastor come to, to talk to the house, like, to meet the kids? Like, oh, what's bad? And um, so, no, no, I said, no, 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 they're, they're, not, they're not in trouble. If I just say, they're, they're at the church property, and I love it when they're there, and I love it when I see people playing on the, the property. I love when I see ball games going on. This is your park that we want you to, to use. And so I invited them to vacation Bible school and just said it'd be a great time, and and when it is, you can see it online and say, you'll probably get another flyer, and that would be a, a wonderful thing. Um, and then I also said, hey, your kids are here. They're asking about a drone. I'm also going to fly a drone in case you're interested. They're interested in that, and so whatever. Um, my sense from talking to them, they're not Christians, okay? Um, I don't think at all, um, but they need to know my love and care for them. And so the kids were then fascinated by my drone, and they got a, a picture there. They're looking at themselves there on the drone from, from above. And, and one of the moms even came by to see. And so as I'm flying my drone, right, I can talk. Right? And so I talked with her about church and about vacation Bible school, about kids club, about church on Sunday morning. I invited them to come. And, and we did talk about drones, took a picture of their house for them. And, but there it is, right? Just, just, just reaching out in love and grace to people who are enemies of the gospel of Christ. Because the way they're going to they're gonna come to know grace is by experiencing grace from us. And experiencing, un, um, whatever, experiencing undeserved favor from us. And just kindness and just seeking there to be around them. And my hope, and I'm, I'm praying for them, that, that just God, especially here in the neighborhood, those close by might, might come and see and experience just the amazing blessings of God's grace in Jesus and have their lives transformed, have their lives bettered is my, my heart for that. And so if I can use a drone for that, wonderful. Well, we've seen the fourth time he's told the story, how to view the Jews, Jews and now how to view the Lord. Verse 29, this is the core. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This is the core reality of what Paul has been saying. The reason why he's so confident in the future of the Jews is because of God's faithfulness. What God says he will do, what he promises he will perform. And the promises of the new covenant were made with Israel. Yes, we experienced the, the overflow, but the promises were made to them. And God knew, Paul knew, that God was going to fulfill his promise to them. He would call them and they would return. 
He would give them gifts, and they would not be taken away. God is no Indian giver who gives gifts and takes it back. God is no vain promiser who makes a promise and crosses his fingers behind his back that he is going to do. No, when God gives, he's not taken back. When God promises, he will perform. The gifts, chapter 9, verse 4. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship. These are the gifts, and God's not going to take them away. They are theirs. And they are ours. I have a little book on my shelf entitled, Bible, Prayers, and Promises. I, uh, uh, one of the reasons I went to seminary is because when I was in college, I attended a small church, probably 40 people. It was the best church in town I could find, Hope Wesleyan Church. At least they, they taught the Bible. And um, on my graduation from Knox College, check that out. What day? Today. 29 years ago today, I was given this little book here. You can, you can look right in there. There it is. Given to Steve Brandon. I forget the pastor's name. He was a, he was a very kind man. And um, was given. This is Bible prayers and promises. Simply a collection of Bible verses arranged topically. First half, Bible prayers. Um, prayers of, of praise. Prayers of confession. Prayers of thanksgiving. Prayers for healing and guidance and strength. Prayers when in trouble and afraid. And the second half of the book is Bible promises. Promises of God's love and forgiveness and salvation. Promises for freedom and growth, encouragement. Promises for when you feel guilty or dejected or depressed or confused. And I'd encourage you to be familiar with, not this book, but with these sorts of promises of God. Because it's best to pray like the Bible prays. And it's best to take God's promises from the book. Let me, let me just, I just, I thought this morning I'm going to random, right? This is, this is not good Bible reading technique, right? But it's promises to come again. Acts 1, 11, The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. It's a promise. Christ's going to come back on the clouds. Okay. God's promise to bless you. God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Psalm 67, verse 7. Psalm 107, verse 9. He satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. So good promises. How about some prayers, right? Prayers when afraid. And um, Psalm 143, verse 9. Rescue me from my enemies, O Lord, for I hide myself in you. Just I need help. I am afraid. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 23. I encourage you just to know the prayers of the Bible, right? Know the promises of the Bible and, and embrace them. Now, now, a caveat, a disclaimer. Romans eleven twenty nine was true for Israel, but it's not true for everyone in Israel. In other words, right, there'll be a day when God does take away their sins, but the Jews of Paul's day didn't experience that. They weren't receiving, experiencing the promises of God because they were hardened, verse 25. The promises of the Bible are just like that. They're not magic words true in every case particularly if your heart is hard. They're true when your heart is soft and when you're trusting in the Lord and what God promised to Israel, it overflows to us and that's how these promises come. So trust in the Lord. Experience His promises. Know His promises and you'll never regret it. 
All right, so quickly, let's move to my, my last point this morning. I'm calling it just the fifth time. The fifth time this story is going to be told again and again. Here we go. Verses 30 through 32. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Okay, so let's begin, turn again to our diagram. Here's the different ways in which talking about the Jews, something bad, they go away. The Gentiles, something good, they come in, but with a future promise for Israel. And this time it's this, that Paul tells a story using these words. Israel was disobedient. And it's through their disobedience that the Gentiles were shown mercy. But there will come a time when mercy comes upon all. And that is God's perfect salvation plan. And you need to realize, really, through all this, that it all comes to us by God's mercy. None of us deserve it. In fact, you look at the Jews on the left-hand side, and this is what characterized them. They stumbled. That means they didn't believe in Jesus. They rejected God. They were broken off. They were hardened. They were disobedient. Do any of these people deserve mercy at all? No. They don't. No, what about the Gentiles? We have received these great blessings, salvation, reconciliation. We've grafted in. We've got the fullness. We've been shown mercy. Do any of us deserve that? No, it's only come about because the Jews have rejected it in God's sovereign plan and timing. And what about the Jews? Do they deserve spiritual riches and resurrection and grafted back and being saved and mercy on them? They don't. Especially in light of the first column. They don't deserve the third column, but truth be known... We were in the first column too. Just mercy is all what this text is about. That's why Paul says in chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. These, church family, are the mercies of God that come to us who don't deserve anything. And really, what does this do that drives us all to humility? That drives us all to realize that, as verse 32 says, that God has consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all. It means all of us, we've been in the obedience state, we've, we've known that is, and we're rebellion against God, that we might receive mercy. So I just encourage you, remember you were, where you were apart from Christ. Maybe you're apart from Christ here this morning, and you need that mercy. Cry out to him for mercy. So let's pray. Father, I do thank you that you are, are merciful and gracious and would pray, Father, for our, our labors in the harvest. Uh, Father, we would pray that you, by your grace, would help us to, uh, to know those who are in need of mercy. God, and may be able to overflow, even as the overflow of mercy comes from the, the Gentiles back to the Jews, may it flow out of us into other people. God, who, who know and experience the kindness and the mercy of God, I pray for those who are here today who don't know the mercy of God, who don't know what it means to show grace, who don't know what it means to extend mercy. I pray for their soul. God, I pray that you would, would help them, that they, that they might realize that it's all about our mercy. It's all about your mercy to us. God, thank you for your plan. It is, a, it is an amazing plan, oh God. And five times we've kind of looked at it to see how it goes and would pray it would sink deep into our minds that we would never be arrogant towards the Jewish people. 
And God, also, we'd never be arrogant towards unsaved Gentiles around us as well because the principle follows as well is that they likewise are enemies for the sake of the gospel. God, but by election, God, they may be friends. They may be loved. And we certainly need to love them and share the gospel with them. God, I pray for fruit from us. I pray that we would speak about spiritual things to people. God, that you would open eyes and hearts, God, to the glories of Christ. I just would pray for a church. God, even as I share at the beginning of my, my message today, I pray you'd help us walk in unity, walk in mercy, walk in grace towards each other, that we might truly enjoy your grace that comes to us freely through Jesus. God, that we would extend your glory to a world that is dying in their sin. God, so use us, O oh God, we pray, for the glory of Jesus, for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.